Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CEDH. I am one of your hosts, Lyndon, aka Noobzors, and today I'm joined by my co-hosts, Matt, aka Null. How's it going, everyone? Reed, aka Sick Robot. How you doing? And Morgan, aka Spleenface. What's up? In this episode, we're going to be covering threat assessment at the request of someone on uh, the Gitrog server. <laughs> they wanted to uh, get a nice resource for, for threat assessment in CEDH. And you know what? I figured uh, let's, let's give them a nice podcast they can, uh, they can listen to. So that was, uh, I think that was Kehlani on the Gitrog server. So shout out to you, Kehlani. Uh, yeah, but before we get into that, what have you guys been up to since the last episode? Oh well, went to Montreal to play some, play some commander. Oh, you did uh, too. Oh, what a coincidence! Yeah. I, I had it <laughs> no. up there as well. Wow. No way. Yeah, me too. I'm pretty sure I went to Montreal as well. I, I would have known if you went. Sure. You probably did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw. Okay, I saw some. I saw three people wearing the exact same shirt as me. Yeah, oh my god. Crazy, right? It's, what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, no. So yes, yes. Memes aside, we all went to Montreal. JP Montreal. Uh super fun we went with uh so uh morgan matt and reed came up from toronto picked me up along the way uh we all got an airbnb jammed some games with some uh friends we got some people come up from so i'm i'm in uh kingston ontario which i'm now shilling a meme that kingston ontario is the largest cedh play group in the world because we have at least 10 regular cdh players sometimes more so that's that i i feel like that eclipses you know most cdh twice a week but (laughs) wow that that meme aside uh yeah we had some people from uh other people from kingston go up to montreal as well so some regulars from my play group there uh here and then uh we also jammed with uh shaper lurker pongo scotty uh, come on guys scotty Scotty uh, yeah wow Okay, here we go. Here's here's the list of names, and let's not fuck anything up. Uh, <laughs> uh, Scuba Steve, um, Drac Paladin. Uh, okay, guys, help me out here. Francis. <laughs> oh, I thought you had, oh, yeah, thought you had yes. a um, list. Yeah, 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 yeah. Francis got a sweet Aminatu primer. Yes, uh, Fletcher. Yes. Uh, We're getting there. We'll get there. Don't worry. Uh, I'm. I'm thinking. I'm. I'm looking. I'm picturing the round table in my head. Uh, God, we should have. Oh, we also saw Jan from the Spike Feeders. Did. He was judging the tournament. Jan was great. Didn't get a lot of time to play, but we got to annoy him with weird rules questions. <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, okay. Uh, well, you know what? There is there is a nice CDH group photo that we can uh, we can link to like a little. It'll be the background of the video on YouTube. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Uh, but yeah, it was it was lots of fun. We went out to it's kind of kind of a little just quick little story. Yeah, so uh, Pongo booked a nice like dinner for for people, and we we showed up. And it was way fancier than <laughs> we were expecting. So we all had just gotten out of like the GP and like I was basically wearing pajamas, like <laughs> track pants and a hoodie. Morgan's, Morgan's in shorts. 
Yeah. <laughs> so we're like outside this restaurant. And I'm looking in this. People, people are wearing suit jackets. The menu, everything on the menu started with a the. It, it was, was the egg, yeah. there were, the beef. There were three options of tasting menus. Yeah. <laughs> the, the wine was, menu was alone was larger than the food menu. <laughs> Yeah, was, quite a bit was, more uh, expensive. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we were all in matching Into the North t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> it was really cute, yeah. Yeah, all good right. times. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was loads of fun. Uh, always a pleasure to jam with, uh, with people who you don't get to see that often. Oh, 100% And I guess also uh, I'll, I'll shout out to Zach, Keegan, and Josh from QMTG, which is the queen's magic the gathering club in kingston ontario so i just well, just they were there as well and I, want, I just want to make sure i'm you know giving all shout outs where they're due but yeah that's a good time though uh, got a lot of good games in yeah i got some people good i i want to test out new tech but then somebody wouldn't follow me and it was spoiled and now it's forever spoiled and i'll never get that moment back <laughs> okay well I think that about covers it for Montreal recap, even though that was kind of all over the place. But it was a bit brief, whatever. but you know, it was a good time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've been we've been asked to keep these episodes shorter, so we're we're not gonna. We're, we're spend... making the effort, okay? Yeah, <laughs> it's hard sometimes. Uh, yeah, so let's jump into housekeeping, and in housekeeping, we have three new patrons. Uh, so sh- big shout out to Dan S. Another big shout out to Sean K. And a third big shout out to Wes D. You Thanks, rock. guys. Oh, God, I wanted to say <laughs> Just like the command zone. Got God him. damn it. It's We're so all baked in. Someone might as well just say <laughs> I know. <laughs> just let it out. Yeah. Wait till they cough it again. Seriously? We're going to get sued. We're going to get striked. But seriously. You guys are awesome. You guys are great. Yeah, yeah we're going to start saying, you guys are awesome. I mean, instead I'm, of you I'm rock. still That's... continuously impressed and entirely surprised that people will continue to support us like this. Yeah, it's it's a huge help. Again, as we say in the closing episode, at, at the close of the episode each week, helps pay for uh, equipment and editing. And we're going to try to use that to improve the show for you guys. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Without further ado, up into new developments, and boy, have there actually been a lot of new developments a lot. since we, the we, last like, we, episode. We yeah. went away for Montreal, and just like everybody came out of the woodwork, and we're like, "All right, we're gonna publish all our stuff right now." Yeah, so I, I want to kick things off by giving a huge shout out to Forge Ten. Uh, that's uh, that's his Discord username, and he's Forgotten Kane on Reddit. Uh, just dropped double a double Gitrog primer, so uh, it's a primer for double Titan, uh, or like the double Titan based Gitrog, which uh, Forge and I have discussed on the Gitrog server, which we kind of think is the new standard list, which kind of feels weird to say because it's not really something that you get to just kind of decide on it's kind of whatever people are using the most is kind of the standard list but we, we, we kind of we kind of think this is the direction that the deck should be going um so yeah he dropped a primer for double titan and as well as the guy's blessing uh the guy's blessing get rock deck which is when actually did we did we give a shout out to him for the 20 easy steps in the last episode i think that was like just after Okay, well so then we should definitely do double that too. double feature here. So uh Forge also dropped a 
20 easy steps for a Titanless Gitrog combo. So that's an evolution on my 60 step line, uh, which was, you know, very complicated and involved lots of expensive cards. Uh, and Forge managed to simplify it a lot. So, uh, yeah, people don't need to worry about, you know, having chains of Mephistopheles and LED and things like that when trying to do 60 easy steps, which is used for comboing through an in-play Anafenza or if your Titan gets exiled. Uh, yeah, so you no longer need that. You can use the 20 easy steps by Forge. And then Forge also wrote a very nice primer on uh, the Guy's Blessing build of Gitrog. And yeah, it's... Forge has been putting in a mad amount of work into uh, Gitrog resources lately, and, you know, everyone who plays Gitrog is very thankful for it. I mean, it, it's a deck that always needs more resources, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's it's one of the most popular decks of all time in CDH. Continually, people are constantly coming onto that deck, and then it's got... I mean, it's not necessarily super hard to pilot for the most part you know it's kind of just an a b combo but the loops themselves can be a bit more complicated and definitely people can get confused so I, resources people available can definitely get nice. confused oh people can 100 percent get confused <laughs> playing that deck yeah, shout out to uh, our editor roadkill <laughs> <laughs> don't don't worry buddy you'll learn the lines eventually I believe. Yeah. <laughs> just to get to spend a bit more. Hey, look, right. you, you, have to, you have two more primers that just came out. You got some more reading material to get through. Speaking of more primers, <laughs> we have more oh, yeah. primers to discuss. So who we wants to talk about this next discuss. So this next primer is by a friend of the show, Keegan, um, showing off his Urza Brew. Uh, pretty classic Mana Denial Urza. Um, he goes over some pretty spicy new cards like Mystic Forge and mystic sanctuary um yeah as he puts it you know urza got hit by the paradox engine ban uh known as the dark times and then yeah so this is what we have yeah keegan uh i'm matt and morgan used to regular jam against keegan when they were still at uh, queen's university but i am still have the i'm not sure if i want to say pleasure or displeasure of jamming against keegan <laughs> uh shout out to shout out to keegan yeah so that's uh he's too many tapers on reddit so if you want to find his primer we'll definitely be linking to that in the show notes um but yeah so i get to regularly see this deck and it's interesting in that it defer it, it it differs from the standard list which reed also reed, reed curates the standard list with yeah. shaper siggy and someone else lurker lurker yeah. that's right uh, which we are yeah we're, we're not consistently updating but we're getting there <laughs> we have a lot of stuff to yeah. get through first but we'll get there don't worry about it but yeah this is i yeah, would so I, as, I can definitely vouch vouch for keegan in the sense that he has been playing mono blue he suffered through teferi uh and you know been playing jamming all tons of games with urza so you know it's he's got a different opinion not the orthodoxy uh, but it's definitely worth listening to, certainly to uh, to get a different perspective because he has some solid experience with it. And as a connoisseur of Urza, I'd recommend checking it out. Um, I, th I think like there are definitely things to take away from pretty much every different Urza build because there are a lot of them. <laughs> I think like you should definitely shop around and check them all out um, if you're looking to play one. All right, and our before we get into uh, the last little bit of. Uh, new developments 
We've got a yet another primer from someone on this podcast. That's oh, is it me. me. Is it me? No, nope, it's uh, me for once. It's Morgan. <laughs> it's not always about you, Reed. Uh, I wrote a primer for Holland, Teller of Tales. Who is? I'm sorry. Who is that? Holland, Teller of Tales. Who is? I, I didn't get that. Te- oh. oh, it's Tulane. Yeah, okay, Tulane gotcha. Teller of Tales. Uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, if you read the primer, you learn how to pronounce it. Um, and yeah, he's one of the new Brawl Commanders. He's a Bant 5-drop, and he enables all sorts of crazy, wacky combos and does silly things with Lotus Cobras. Um, you know, it's a it's an interesting deck, I think, because you're very like you're obviously slower than something like a Thrasios Timna Flash Hulk, and you know, you don't have black, but you in exchange for that, you get like the deck's extremely resilient to hate. You can basically ignore Null Rod and Rest in Peace type effects, and you can even win through Cursed Totem, which there aren't a lot of decks that can actually win through all three of those uh, hate pieces. So, you know, might be an option for your meta. We'll link that down below and check it out if you're interested. Mm-hmm. And it's also um, it is also I just I, oh. I do want to mention it's like the one actually like real Aluren deck in the format because <laughs> people people have been <laughs> trying to make that card work for decades centuries at this point, but Holland does it. Yeah. He makes it work. And so Morgan, also you want to shout out uh, Gauntlet? Yeah. Okay, so uh, Gauntlet is a life counter app. Um, Not the first, certainly won't be the last, but this one is particularly awesome because it has uh, a feature where you can store your decks uh, associated with your account and you can uh, access other people's decks associated with their accounts. So you can record games against other people uh, and then that's all that data is yeah, tracked. Certain pod compositions, yeah, like too, pod yeah, compositions. Right? That data is tracked against, like, if you if I play a game and I mark that Reed was my opponent, then like that game will appear for Reed as well. He can see that, um, and it just provides like a full, you know, like that all of that, and um, it also has a timer, which none of the other ones seem to have. So that's just gravy. That's sweet. Yeah, nice it, way to track uh, uh, stats. Is, is it both is iOS and useful. Android? Or? Uh, unfortunately, right now, it is only iOS. Uh, it's a two-person team, and they've it was only released about a month ago, and they're still adding features. And then they said once they are satisfied that they have the app more or less complete on iOS, they'll look into Android. All right. Nice. And so our last little segment of new developments is... It's not really a okay. So we're, we're we're not really doing set review episodes anymore because we we don't think it's worth it to take up a full episode every month on just spoiler season because it feels like we're in you know perpetual we're, we're spoiler perpetual season at this point. Spoiler season all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just especially over the last summer with all the brawl decks, commander decks, all this stuff. But yeah, so we're decided we're just gonna maybe you know every new set. Unless it's something like insane where there's a million different cards we need to do and we'll maybe devote more of a topic to it. We're just going to pick our favorite card from the set for CDH and uh, maybe give and a brief little discussion about it there are, in new developments. There are, I, I trust that there are more than enough competent other content creators who are doing set reviews that you don't need to get all that <laughs> content here. 
Um, yeah. I'm sure if you want full in-depth set reviews on every single set, there are other people. I think the lab men do lab set men, reviews. Yeah. Uh, I think spike feeders have done one or two, right? Unless I'm completely misremembering that. Yeah, there are definitely more than enough out there. Yeah, and set reviews are kind of better when they're scrollable and you know reviewable and all that referenceable. So just yep. check out uh, check out shapers. It's hard uh, to do with uh, set, shapers set, set update post. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> basically the the most the the best uh, text post related to uh, set reviews every set. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So without further ado, Matt, you want to kick things off with your favorite card? Sure. My favorite card from Eldraine is Fae Burrow Elder which is one green and a white creature tree folk druid has vigilance and Faberal elder gets plus one plus one for each color among permanents you control for each color among permanents you control add one mana of that color if you tap it so you might think bloom tender uh you're right but it's a bit better <laughs> you are correct <laughs> it's a bit better right it's, you know it can kind of beat people uh, god Timna attacker and blocker. Dude, I'm so I'm so sad. I had to give this card up as my favorite because I had to rep another one. But God, Favoro is so good. It's a sick card. It's a house. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely gilded drakeable. <laughs> oh, hundred percent gilded drakeable. <laughs> I do just want to. I do just want to say because like I don't. I'm not sure if you like realize just how good this is in Timna Thrasios. Like most cards, but specifically this one. Um, just like. Vigilance plus big body plus tapping for four mana is like really good. Who would have thought that vigilance would be relevant text in <laughs> in CDH? <laughs> oh man, what has Timna done to this meta? Dude. And also, that is the uh, new meta. One thing I definitely didn't appreciate when I first saw this card, but have in playing it, is particularly when you're trying to make a lot of mana with it in. When you curve into it on turn two off a dork, it's like almost better than Bloom Tender sometimes. Because, oh yeah, like that one mana on turn two rarely does much. Uh, but having that extra mana, the turn you untap with it is super helpful. And like not having to like have the Timna already in play to make white, because like white's already usually the most difficult color to make off of a Bloom Tender in those decks. So, like. Just having it stapled to the card already and pre-existing. Yeah. Oh, also, dodges Pyroclasm if you have a Thrasios on the board, which is, like, way too good. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Which is unreal. Okay, Reed, you're All up. Right. What's your favorite so card? So I, I had to pass up a bunch of them. I had to pass up a bunch of other favorite cards that other people got to take here to do this one. But my favorite card of the set for all formats, not just CDH, is Mystic Sanctuary. Mystic Sanctuary is a land island type. That's a good one. Uh, obviously, rules text tapped out of blue. Mystic Sanctuary enters a battlefield tapped unless you control three or more other islands. Note, no basic on that card. When Mystic Sanctuary enters the battlefield untapped, you may put target, or target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard on top of your library. Mm. So... Fetchable survival right? <laughs> is not bad. <laughs> yeah. In general. So okay, I'm I'm not I'm not incredibly excited about this for CDH. I think it does have purposes and does have usages. Um you get to run it in just like Urza so, for free. So first of all, like you get to run it in low color blue decks. Also, it combos with a couple of mono blue commanders, which is pretty neat. So old Kefnet combos with it plus a turn spell, which is pretty awesome. Um because he 
you pay for it and he also has the weird ability to bounce a land when he does that and it's optional so you can just bounce I, the mystic I sanctuary like and mystic do that. sanctuary in uh in yuriko like you can use it's also uh, not a bad there's one like the kami the kamigawa block had the uh moon folk there's a couple two drop moon folks with flying which obviously you want like evasive weenies and yuriko to get the ninjutsu but they also have the an ability for like two mana to just bounce a land so if you're bouncing mystic sanctuary when you're just comboing with turn spells seems pretty or, good or when yeah. you're just putting fat stuff in the grave and then putting them back on top and murdering people yeah, yeah that true. also works but oh yeah uh so that and then maloku combos with it in mono blue um, and then it's also not Seems terrible. Seems worse than Kefnet. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it does. Um, also, Kefnet's. Uh, I, I, I'm going to show another deck here because we're going to link this one <laughs> later. Also, because I, I love this deck way too much. Uh, yeah, I, I forgot about it until recently. It's great. Sorry, taking up time. Old Kefnet is awesome because he's indestructible, so you get to polymorph him without losing him, <laughs> which is <laughs> nice. fantastic because cool. it means that with Mystic Sanctuary, you can polymorph him for value to get like a Jin tax or something out of deck and then you can mystic sanctuary to put it back on top like by bouncing it and replaying it with kefnet and then polymorph him <laughs> again to get even more stuff out of deck so you have like this nice. recursive polymorph engine to just like keep getting like Jin taxius consecrated sphinx nezahal out, out of the deck does kefnet return a land as a cost no it's it's optional you may return tide spout yeah you do tide spout shit yes too. And he, it's also, right. again, he's optional, so you can just use him as a bad Thrasios if you wanted to without bouncing the land. It's great. Nice. It's so cool. But last part of the, about this card, it's insane and popper. <laughs> it's so awesome and popper. <laughs> yeah. first, week, first week this was legal, I brought it, which was this last past week, um, I brought it to a popper tournament in an Esper Familiars deck, and I got to utter a sentence that I never thought I'd ever get to say in popper. <laughs> which was it was turn five and i got to say i'd like to demonstrate a loop <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and then i drew my deck made infinite mana and killed him <laughs> nice um all right so i guess i'm up next so my pick from the set is Oakham adversary aka grob and grob is uh is is as he's uh affectionately known is stands for green bob uh okay adversary is an elf warrior creature for three and a green and he is a two three and he reads this spell costs two generic less to cast if your opponent controls a green permanent it has death touch and whenever okay adversary deals combat damage to a player draw a card yeah so i think this is the closest of the to bob of the fake bobs yep. which is like mind blade render um Ruin Ranger. What's the Grim Flare? What's the empty card or empty hand one? Asylum. This one. Asylum Wonder. Asylum. No Asylum Seeker. No, it's Asylum. Oh, Visitor. Asylum Visitor. Okay, I was right the first time. And there's a Pain Seer as well. Yeah. So okay, the best of these two three is a very relevant stat line for two mana. Two most of the time. Yeah, three three toughness being able to not you know trade with Timnus, um, and the fact that he has death touch means that people will not be throwing Thrasios in front of him God, very often. Dude, I can swing through Gitrog finally in my Timna deck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Okame Okame 
gets to swing through a lot of things because people do not are, are going to be very reluctant to trade their uh, their <sighs> creatures for uh, for your card. The fact that you can't, I can't be safe with my Thrasios anymore. Is <laughs> you can't. It's we, dark we can't times. Have the, we can't have the Timnus circle <laughs> jerk of cast Timna, cast Thrasios, block each other's Timnus, swing at everybody else. <laughs> and you also like you can't. Um, you know, often with with things like this, someone will eventually decide to to multi block it. Like, oh, I'll block with, you know, like a two two and a dork, and like I'll lose one of them, but it's worth it to get it off the board. But this, you're losing both things you you double block with. Yeah, and having a green permanent in play is like the most non-conditional condition i've ever it's, heard it's like that's like so like it, that's so close to just if somebody else has a land in play cast it for two yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you want to just just take note of how many times on your like turn one or two someone else has a dork in play it's, it's just it's not even bad yeah, on turn three <laughs> like yeah. you cast it for two on turn three you still have a mana up if you didn't have a dork yeah Damn. Um, okay, our final card, Morgan. Uh, our final card is Corridor Monitor, and it is a two. Uh, it is an artifact creature that casts for one and a blue. It's a one four, and it has when Corridor Monitor enters the battlefield, untap target artifact or creature you control. Uh, so it's a little uh, pod chainer, but it's one of the special ones that works with both Vanifar and Pod, um, and also Yisan in decks that run that um because it can untap all of them unlike the ones that flicker or like breaching hippocamp on four uh or bounding crisis stuff like that um so this just means that pod chains now can start at one uh which is pretty cool for decks like blue pod or uh some of the some of the new like teamer teamer type decks that we've we've seen people uh, working on with the printing of Dockside Extortionist in Commander 2019. Uh, obviously, this immediately went into my Vanifar list because it's insane in there. Um, and yeah, it's just uh, it's just another little one to have. It's also a one four, which uh, is a little surprising. <laughs> you Lost know, in the like, baby. That's hey, definitely some stats for two drop. <laughs> oh my god! And um, <laughs> the one other thing I've seen. Uh, shout out to friend of the podcast Tom for this one was uh, because it's a two drop you can do interesting pod or Vanifar lines using Renegade Rallyer as your three drop which is obviously like a much more useful card than oh, that's Pestermite yeah. or something like that so that, that was and uh, it also neat piece layers quote unquote layers but it layers well with some Hulk piles so like it, it's a card that's useful for both a Hulk pile yes. and a pod line. Sort of neat. And because they're artifacts, if you can't attack after making infinite of them with Kiki Jiki, you can tap them to Urza to make infinite mana. <laughs> <and cast laughs> <your Urza. laughs> God. All right. Wow. Uh, <laughs> cool. So that attack. wraps it up for our favorite cards from Eldrain. And let's get into the meat and potatoes of the episode: threat assessment. So we've got we've got some bullet points lined up here, but I think I think let's let's just tackle the low hanging fruit for threat assessment. Well, I think, and that's going to be. I think the first oh, thing we sure, have to say ahead. is that listening to us talk about threat assessment for the next half hour to an hour 
is not going to teach you everything you need to know. No, and a lot all. of it comes from just playing a bunch experience. of games, experience, you know, learning the hard way sometimes. Uh, most so just times. get that caveat yeah, out of the way. This times. <laughs> doesn't make you yeah. an expert. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully you can uh, take some advice or, or, or hopefully we say something new that you weren't familiar with get, or just yeah, remind you a fresh to, take on, you know, a yeah. way to think about assessment. Get some, get exactly. some building blocks going, get a good foundation laid down. Okay. So back to what I was saying, let's tackle the low hanging fruit of threat assessment. That's going to be knowing the decks you're up against. So just being able to identify you're sitting down across from a tasker deck, a Zer deck and a cast deck. What, what, what might you see, right? You're, you, if you see a tasker deck, right? Being able to, to kind of in your mind, reference the cards, you're going to see what kinds of win cons are they going to be doing. So if, if anyone here saw a tasker deck, what do you think their win con is going to be? So they obviously have a scepter Probably in the deck, right? Scepter, yeah. True. So they, they obviously exactly. have a scepter. That's, that's have the first one. thing I think of as well. Potentially, so, potentially they might have some Eldritch Evolution Neoform stuff going on. Um, that's 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 a, like that's yeah. a known quantity. Yeah. They might they there's a likelihood that they'll have some reanimation happening, or um, potential for ad nauseum. Yep, or or ad nauseum. Yeah. It's it's fairly safe to assume uh, that like at least a couple of those things are going to be in that deck. But how many how many of you guys are gonna think when you see a Tasker deck Doomsday? <laughs> I for one am not gonna be assuming that. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. So just having that that kind of information um, from experience, and also just you, you don't you don't have to have run into these decks a lot if you just go onto the uh, CDH uh, decklist database website. Which, by the way, did get a go, overhaul recently. Um, yeah, uh, we I think we mentioned that a couple episodes ago. No, 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 no. Uh, as in, like, as in, we did we did another formatting overhaul recently again. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's now all one list instead of needlessly having to split everything into two lists. Um, so it's all it's all on one page. You don't have to go to secondary and primary or like primary and fringe to find your decks now. You just have to like we just have it all in one page, and now we have. Uh, something called uh, basically just like the recommended list or they're just tags for recommended by the managers all right yeah so we'll link to that in the description for the podcast so if you want to freshen up on what the cdh meta looks like uh what you might expect from certain decks in terms of win cons uh interaction and whatnot uh definitely check that out go through the decks that you're going to see in your meta or just the most popular decks uh so you might want to freshen up on gitrog urza uh thrasios and timna najila those are some of the most popular decks out there so you want to know what you're up against the first um, sliver i mean the first yeah first sliver is <laughs> certainly popular is it sliver tribal you never know until you find out huh <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I guess to that so, point, like you oh, kind sure. of also want to identify um, cards that put uh, particular decks on particular win conditions if they aren't necessarily in the meta. Yes. Right. You know, if you see a bunch of sliver synergy, they're probably not on food chain. You know, and it, and it, <laughs> and it goes the opposite way. If you don't see this, the, you know, the, the sliver synergy, they're probably on food or chain. Or if you see them cast a demonic <laughs> consultation, <laughs> probably not slivers. 
bit of yeah, a bit of a silly example, but you know, so, but also point to Matt's there. point, uh, like Thrasius and Timna is a is a often an unknown quantity. We've talked about this in our uh, the Thrasius Timna problem episode, where they just get a massive advantage of being able to obscure their win con. Are you up against a Breakfast Hulk list? Shuffle Hulk, Sacred Hulk, CST. Uh, cinnamon toast mid range or cinnamon whatever. Toast the hell we're <laughs> cinnamon toast crunch. Cinnamon toast crunch. Still cinnamon toast crunch. Name hasn't changed. Yeah. <laughs> Breakfast waffle maple syrup. You know, just something. Yeah, if they're playing Thrasios yeah. and they have a you know a particular amount of uh, creature based ramp, they're probably on feed from the real. So it's always I think, a possibility. I do think that, yeah, there there is a there is a trick that I think uh, I should mention. Well, it's it's not like a. Oh, like learn this quick trick and you'll suddenly be able to do this and like identify <laughs> every single thing. players hate him. this one but, simple trick. But um something that you should consider is that um or something that the audience at large, the community at large should consider um when trying to identify and like try to minimize the impact of the anonymity of the rest of the list is um sort of like learning the like the typical cards of like what would go into a specific list, not necessarily like the so like the, cons, different, the key differentiators. Like, yeah, but like stuff like oh, like like uh, it's n- it's not particularly likely that like a I don't know like a um what's a good one something like yeah like if okay so obviously like if you see like a sack outlet it's like oh well <laughs> we know that they're not on CST we know that they're not on console we know that they're not on like a hulk deck that doesn't require a sack outlet right like we know they're specifically on a sack outlet hulk deck and that like you can narrow that down a lot but also stuff like um other stuff like oh like we saw a silence that means they're not on sacred hulk or like a source of plasher it means they're not on sacred hulk or like alternatively you can see a lot of the time like stuff like oh like they cast a pondrify that might imply that they are on sacred hulk because maybe they don't have mm-hmm. the white mana to do stuff like that. So just like, mm. I, it, I'm, <laughs> I'm not giving good examples here, but the idea is to some no, I think those are great examples. Like associate uh, or like learn to like identify key cards in lists that stand out when you look at the list online, and then try to try to remember that in game. So like when you see somebody play a card that isn't necessarily a staple across every single uh, deck with the same commander. You go, oh, okay, so I've associated that card with this specific strategy or this specific list, which means that I can, I have a reasonable assumption that, like, hey, maybe they're on that list, as opposed to any of these other ones. Yeah, one of yeah. one of the things I always look for is um, if, it, if they're playing two CMC mana rocks, they're almost certainly not on Hulk or Razaketh. That's a hallmark of more CST that's also, that, that, that's a great style one. lists. Yeah. Um, it used to be that I would have said that the reverse was true about some of the less good dorks, like the the ones that only produce green. But of course, Reed had to go make an ad nauseum consult list with green dorks in it because <laughs> we can't have nice things. Um, another thing to identify if they're not on, on Hulk at the very least is um, some of the slower cards like if they're playing something like a, a Ristic Study, is a big one that goes in more mid rangey less yeah. fast lists. 
Training um, grounds. Uh, it's the a training grounds. grounds? In Sacred Hulk. It's in Sacred Hulk is the issue with that one. But I mean, can, it still does yes, narrow down the yes, field. Yeah, you're not going to yeah, see training also, grounds uh, that, in your breakfast or shelf. I, I think I think Sacred Grounds is actually a good one, a good example for not necessarily archetype definition, but for specifically like speed definition. It's like a lot of these cards were like you see like oh like he cast a compost. That means he's probably not on an aggressive list, right? Like he's not looking to or they rather can be inclusive here yeah they're not they're not looking to go uh like go play fast and like try to get you like they're playing compost for a reason right they're expecting to draw a few cards off of it at least so like you reasonably expect they're going slow on the other hand like stuff like uh like if people are like scratching the bottom of the barrel for tutors and you see somebody like i don't know like play a grim tutor or something like that in a four color list you're like oh okay that means they're probably aggressively tutoring for one specific thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, uh, anything CS, else to say on this? Or? CST lists, I don't believe, tend to run diabolic intent as much because they're just not on the the volume of dorks to make yes. it uh, make it good. So, if you see a diabolic intent, it's definitely a more creature leaning deck. Just things like that, and you know, you can't always narrow it down a hundred percent, but. If you can even eliminate a couple possibilities, or even just make it so you're like, even if you're right, you know, three quarters of the time, when you call Hulk, that means tutoring for rest in peace shuts them down three quarters of the time, which is still pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So piggybacking up what Morgan was saying there, we're we're talking about ways to identify which deck people are playing or which specific archetype of you know the Thrasius Timnid Commander pair. But this is a threat assessment episode. So what are you what are you doing with that information? How are you assessing whether or not they're a threat based off the identification of their deck? Well, I think one of the first one of the issues people have with with threat assessment is that they often jump immediately into are they a threat? Like, when are they a threat? As opposed to, like, what is it that makes this deck a threat? And how does it win? What do I have to watch out for? And, like, so how how, how far away are they from that, from having that, right? Yeah. But it's hard to tell how far away they are from winning unless you know how they're how they're winning in a lot of cases. Yes. Um, yeah, just, just because they aren't a Flash Hulk deck, right? You, let's say you reduce it to that they're a CST deck. Um, so you're like, oh, I'm not worried about, you know, the the one in a blue instant speed win if they drop an early ristic study and you're 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 looking at oh my god you know cst here they could still very well be the threat it it does depend on their board state cards in hand uh as well as the archetype right so you but you're just not going to be worried about them in the winning the game the following turn most likely yeah so like i i would just sorry i'll pass this off to morgan afterward because i know he has a lot to say on this um but i I would just say like it the identifying the archetype or the deck that somebody's on is like it's less of an inherent marker of threat assessment like it's not like oh they're on this deck that means they're immediately a threat right now it's just it helps you make decisions based on that which then lead you to a more accurate assessment of whether or not they're a threat in the game yeah like Evaluating game states, for example, we we've, we're talking about the difference between something like a CST or a Flash Hulk. If they're stumbling on mana, for example, that you know maybe that means you aren't you don't have to be as worried about say ad nauseum. But three mana is more than enough for for Flash Hulk to win. So 
you know, just saying, oh, they're on Flash Hulk, therefore they're the threat, is is overly simplistic. W you figure out what deck they're on so that you can figure out how they win, so that you can figure out how far they are from that, so that you can figure out how threatening they are. Um, yeah, so uh, along with that, like, if there's a Graph Digger's Cage in play or, or different stacks pieces in play, knowing whether or not that actually affects the deck you're up against is going to factor in largely into your into your calculation or your your process of determining whether or not they are the most threatening player or how close they are to winning. Though I do have more like, to uh, say on stacks pieces later. And just a, just yeah. as a note, like if you're new to this type of assessment, like it might sound a little daunting based on our description, but you actually have in a real game of CDH, you have plenty of time to think about these things. Like you have three other players' turns to think about exactly these two points we've made and so yeah honestly as well sort of piggybacking on that one too um like it's it sort of sounds counterintuitive but you know like ask around sometimes if you're not sure honestly i was gonna say like, the same thing most people are very interested in you being able to evaluate other people as as so, a legitimate so threat. don't don't just ask one person's table but like i even i i will do this sometimes where like you'd ask the entire table right like, it's just like, okay, like, is is this dude a threat? Like, can you guys think of a of a way for him to win from this position? Can you guys think of like a way that he pulls this off from here? Like, what's what's he likely to have, right? Yeah, or you sometimes just straight up ask, you know, what? How is he winning? Is this CST? Is this Flash Hulk? And other people who might be more familiar with the list than yourself will be able to clue you in. Now, going off, I, I want to also talk about you know reading asking the table it's one thing that's important to understand in cdh is other people's motives for talking uh and sharing information with you uh the enemy the enemy of, of my enemy is my friend holds true in in free for all to an extent but at the same time they are also still your enemy so if if they are <laughs> saying something that's going to hurt or it's information that that kind of elucidates the the board position uh or or deck position of another player at the table probably trustworthy i mean there's some caveats there where they might be trying to over inflate how much of a threat the other person is but very seldom are they going to try to lowball it uh now in terms of if they're the threat you probably don't want to take their word for it most of the time. Sometimes, I know I've been in a situation myself where some people are clearly evaluating me as a threat, and I'll straight up be like, no, you're evaluating it wrong. Someone else is the larger threat here. And and they'll say that because they have a vested interest in not losing the game to, you know, someone once... I'm like hell bent on Gitrog, and like my graveyard has been like wiped by a rest in peace. Someone's like, I'm gonna assassin's trophy Gitrog. You know, maybe that's not the best idea. Maybe you should <laughs> be holding that assassin's trophy for someone. And again, oh, man, you know the, what? The classic, the classic anti-threat assessment comment within this in this kind of context is the, um, no man, I'm on a bad deck. Like I'm not about to win. Yeah. <laughs> but what if I actually am on wow. a bad deck? You can try. <laughs> um one other thing this has been my experience obviously this will vary from person to person and playgroup to playgroup but people will very rarely just straight up lie to you 
like they'll <laughs> they'll obfuscate and they'll twist and they'll exaggerate and they'll conceal but they won't just say blatantly and objectively false statements so you know that's at least a baseline you can generally rely on when you're evaluating what your opponents are saying not being said that's not always true i mean people that will lie to true. force through a thing but you like a lot of the time people will when they're bluffing they won't lie because they have to make it believable a lot of the time if somebody if somebody <laughs> burns if somebody goes for like two tutors and then passes and you're just like you have one hand and they're just like no no, no i tutor for lands <laughs> like that's not that's not believable <laughs> right but like it, like there's on that range but like they're they will usually admit to be like like yeah i tutored strong cards but like they'll try to mislead you on what they are rather than just like denying that they're good cards yeah and as as reed was saying in terms of not just asking a single person on who's the threat or or to get clarification on on the board state or, or for help in, in making assessments but asking the whole table right because if you ask one person you're going to get their biased perspective on maybe some other people but not themselves but if you're asking everyone sort of what their position is you're probably going to arrive somewhere close to the truth where they're going to you know each other person is going to be making a pretty compelling case for the other two uh or yourself for if you're <laughs> for some reason you're trying to figure out if you're the most ahead but yeah they'll, they'll make a compelling case for the other players and then you can kind of take all those all those accounts into uh into consideration and arrive at a conclusion based off those whoever makes the most compelling argument one one thing i will say as well though is keep in mind that like we've been focusing a lot on winning but winning is not the only threat an opponent can present to you in the course of a game so when you are asking people for their threat assessment keep that in mind an example you know i played several games against uh, scumbag metagame Linden on his Anafenza deck. Um, and if I'm on some sort of grave, like let's say I'm on Flash Hulk and he's on Anafenza, like him being in the game is a threat to me. But if you're on some deck that doesn't care about the graveyard, that's not nearly as much of a threat to you. So keep that in mind. If you ask me, I have a very real, ins- like from my perspective, Linden actually is a bigger threat than he is from your you know it's not that i'm exaggerating it's just i have different things that are threats to me yeah that's why it's important to get everyone's perspective also as morgan was saying uh people so even even it's not something like just stacks where you know one person shut out of the game through stacks games in cdh you know they're one when someone resolves a flash and gets their protein hulk trigger but they can also be one a lot earlier in the game and grind your matchups you know, they can be one on when someone resolves their turn three or turn two. Smothering tithe. Uh, Ristic study. Or smothering, <laughs> smothering tithe. tithe. Ristic yeah. study. Uh, uh, even, uh, even Mystic Remora like, that sticks around for a long like time. when somebody sticks a carpet of flowers and like that just gets let through because like, yeah. uh, like as an example, but like when like nobody has the answer, like the counter spell for the turn one or turn two carpet of flowers. And then it just sort of sticks around like that. That and then somebody has four thing, right? islands in play. And yeah. You're like, Wait a minute. <laughs> and Black just, Lotus were... every turn. But yeah, just like yeah. There's <laughs> there's a lot to it, but don't like take your time. 
like look around, take in the information. Don't be afraid to ask if you're missing information. Yeah. Okay. So one let's let's move on to uh some other points here. Uh next up we we've kind of covered this a bit, but that's gonna be making educated guesses at how likely each opponent is to have a win on their next turn in order to determine who is actually a threat. But not also not just so a win. This yeah. interaction and yeah. yeah. This yeah, this involves being able to I think this is something we've talked about in previous episodes. Being able to read people's cards that they have in hand is a skill that, or or even just you, and you, not you by, develop, not you by develop over time neck. through experience. Not, not, a lot, not even necessarily exact cards a lot of the time. Um, I like you don't you don't have to start out being like okay, I have to read like their exact hand this time and like you, you like it like certainly that. helps later but, on. Like I I do think like it's it's good to get into the practice of like hey, I'm gonna try to like figure out what the composition of his hand is right. Like if, yeah. if if they went for like land dork slam Timna as opposed to like dork develop a value engine out of their hand, you could be like, okay, well maybe they're like light on actual things they can commit to the board. Maybe maybe they have like a bunch of tutors, or maybe they have like a cantrip and some counter magic or stuff like that. But like you know you know mm-hmm. they're like, hey, like they didn't commit any more dorks to the board. They went for the Timna. They're they're probably looking to shore up the hand or they don't have anything to commit, right? So like just like working on like, hey, why did they make that play? Why why would they go for that play or, or instead of like playing some other card or doing something else, right? And speaking of turn two Timnas, one of the things that I make a point of saying this in a lot of games, uh, specifically when we're talking about opening hands, unless they went to like four, everyone kept their opening hand for a reason. There's a reason they looked at those seven cards and went, yeah, these are good. I'm going to try and win starting from here. And if you yeah. haven't seen that reason yet, uh, maybe just keep an eye out. Like if somebody has, if they go like, you know, they stumble on, they stumble on two or three mana going like, oh, well, you know, they, they stumble They're you know, they're not casting their value engines. They're not doing this. It's like, okay, but you know, they kept that hand knowing there was a risk they would stumble on mana. And so whatever was in that hand was good enough to justify that risk. So be ready when they get themselves righted again and draw the mana they need. Yeah, so it's it's yeah, predicting and, and, future threat, sort of, right? Like, yeah, they're not a threat now because they don't have the mana, but when they do draw the mana, it's, it's going to be a problem, so... Yeah, and in, in terms of reading exact cards in people's hands, uh, I tend to find this is important for reading the, the interaction available at the table. So if you can read what kinds of people mana, what kinds of mana people are keeping open, you know, if someone is not keeping up double blue, um, you can maybe put them on like a negate or delay uh, versus counterspell mana drain. And, you know, if they're pausing extra long on certain, you know, if someone casts a, a Sylvan library or heuristic study and someone says it pauses a bit, you know, for a bit too long on their on their priority, you might put them on, you know, force of will, force of negation, something like that. Those are important cards to keep in mind in the back of your head in terms of evaluating whether or not someone else is going to be is how threatening someone else is and how likely your chances of winning are. Because if you put the table on, you know, a force of will, uh, let's say you somehow read a, a fluster storm or something like that. Those are important cards to know about because they're pretty hard to answer uh especially like fluster storm or force of will harder to read for some players and and keep up 
enough counter magic to protect it. So maybe the Flash Hulk player isn't your biggest worry because the table has enough interaction for that. Uh, but you know, maybe maybe someone who's going to be trying to resolve something like a creature based combo, like a uh, let's say they're a Godo deck or a Gitrog deck. Gitrog with the Gitrog plus discard outlet. Those are both creatures. Or Godo already has like a Panharmonicon or something in play and just needs to resolve Godo. If there's not, if you don't have a read on good creature based disruption, that player might actually take uh, might actually be more threatening than the Flash Hulk player just based on the type of interaction that you've got to read on. Also, just sort of in this line, in this vein, because we've been talking about like making reads this entire time, um, the general concept to take away from this isn't like that you, again, absolutely need to read everything, or even that like you need to specifically focus on that in every game. But like I think just the general idea that like hidden information tends to be as important or more important than the public information of like cards on the table yeah and then you can get information about that hidden information or you, you can you can ascertain certain aspects of that hidden from your information yeah. from the way people play and just game. like it's it's sort of just like a logic puzzle sometimes where like you it's just like it's and it's not like i, I feel like a lot of people like look at it in sort of the wrong way where they're like okay well this means that he has exactly this card or like this this specific thing means that he can only be doing or it means that they can only be doing like this game plan or they're only going for this where like a lot of the time it's just more of a thing where you're like okay so that the fact that I have this information the fact that they had that card on board or that they played that card this turn means that they're not doing this and it's more of like a process of elimination rather than like nailing one specific thing mm-hmm so I think we can move on to the next point, and that is about uh, you know more more hidden information versus public information stuff. That's about black tutors. So black tutors, uh, because they say any card, you know, search your library for a card, anyway. put that into your hand. It it they, you're able to conceal that information. So black hidden tutors are generally more threatening than revealed and- tutors even though you don't actually That's, see the card. It sounds and generally obvious. speaking, like a Yeah, and generally speaking, a hidden tutor is a lot more mana efficient or works better with, you know, sequencing, but you have to realize that the hidden information can almost be better than that. I guess that <laughs> there's they, a yeah. there's a joke at QMTG of the Matt special which is uh Merchant scroll for mystical tutor, mystical tutor for demonic tutor, <laughs> demonic tutor. Dude, young must well is a fantastic. Dude, you gotta hide what you're you going for. <laughs> Dude, you got that spicy yeah. tech. You're just like, no, 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 you're not seeing this one. <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah, I did so just want to be be aware of how many how many tutors people are casting. So even if you're not aware of the card they found, someone casts a demonic tutor and they don't immediately drop a mana crypt or, or something like that. <laughs> You'd, you should be, you should be quite aware that they've got something very powerful in there. Yeah. Head. Cause like, this is like sort of an obvious one when you, when you just like read and just like, yeah, like that makes sense. Like the, the card that gets anything is better than the card that gets one thing. Um, but I've, it's, it's sort of like a thing this sort of like weird paradox that I've noticed where people just like don't it's like not seeing the card art or something like that means that they just don't make the association that they have a good card in their hand 
Like if, if well, you're yeah, not if actively, you don't know what they have in their hand, right? If, so. Yeah, if you're not actually like actively thinking about it, you just like a lot of the time it's just like, oh, well, he cast a tutor. It's it's basically like he drew a card, right? Like it's hidden information either way. But like it's definitely yeah, you not see someone the, put a bunch of mouse traps into a bag. <laughs> And then there's the other, they put something else in the other bag, and you're not sure. You're like, damn, that bag of mousetraps. I don't want to stick my hand in there. But in reality, the other, the other bag is just yeah, a bear, bear traps. Trap. Yeah. And this point might maybe a bit tangential, but uh, tutors that reveal can also be used to mislead threat, threat, threat assessment, right? Like if you have mm-hmm. some spare tutors and you're ready to win, it's like, all worldly tutor for Dryad Arbor. Spooked. No, that is that is an intense <laughs> amount of levels of death. That's that's like five levels of Yomi. But <laughs> honestly, one of the scariest plays I see is not a mystical tutor for Flash. It's a mystical tutor for Force of Will. <laughs> like hot take. That's a terrible sa- plan. You shouldn't do it. It's okay. Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, certainly there's probably better cards to mystical tutor for, like a Veil of Summer or something, but. The idea being that if you're if you if they're spending the reveal tutors not on setup or, or cards on the, on the on, obvious on on the obvious ones that you're expecting them to tutor right like everybody's expecting them to tutor Flash when they cast any of their tutors right <laughs> so when they yeah. tutor anything else than that that's when it starts to get scary <laughs> yeah, yeah the, that's the correct assumption <laughs> is not necessarily oh they don't have Flash the cor- the correct <laughs> assumption might well be. Oh, they have Flash already. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, that's not always true. You know, sometimes they've yeah. they've made the the call that whatever it is that they are getting is actually more beneficial, or they're worried about losing you know faster than they think they can find and, the protein hulk. And definitely but, making making the conservative call of like always thinking that everybody has it can lead you to lose games because you play too conservatively. But yeah, like certainly don't just assume that because they didn't get the piece you expect the the card you expected them to get, that they don't have it because, like, they're making their decisions for a reason, right? If it was like, well, why would they tutor? You know, obviously Dryad Arbor was an extreme example, but <laughs> yes, yeah, you know, sometimes it might be correct to tutor a value piece as opposed to a combo piece, uh, or a well, piece. Of sometimes it. the value the value tutor like a. If, if like Matt was saying, tutor for a dry armor, it might it might be more realistic realistic to say something like tutor for a dark confidant. Sometimes that's a hedge against a combo attempt failing, right? Like you're you're if you don't have a grand abolisher or something you can find with your worldly tutor that's going to help protect your combo, you might just be you know trying to go for it and then follow that up with a value piece. And if things don't go your so way, so basically spend all your games as a paranoid, nervous wreck. <laughs> based, yeah. <laughs> No, I think, like, obviously they don't always have it, but we just want to caution against, because you see them not getting it, like, when they get it, you know they have it, when they don't get it, that doesn't mean you know they don't have it. And it, it usually, yeah, except it for usually exactly. means that when you don't know what they're getting, it's usually worse than what you think they're getting, or it's at, it's at least as good as what you think they're getting. All right. But you know what you do uh, when they tutor for ad nauseum? You attack them. <laughs> Speaking of ad nauseum, we're going to talk yeah, about the so combat threat is, assessment part of this podcast. Very briefly, yeah, this is this is everyone's favorite. Oh, sorry, Morgan. Do you want to before I continue the segue? You want you have something to say? Oh yeah, I guess um, I guess I'll I'll fit this in with uh, you know, uh, with the information about stacks pieces or not so much stacks pieces but hate pieces, um. 
one thing that I th- that I see people do is they overestimate the effectiveness of a hate piece. Like certain hate pieces are extraordinarily effective. For example, uh, uh, rest in peace against Gitrog. Like yeah, the the Gitrog monster. You know they they don't want to keep it in play because they're just sacking their lands and not drawing. So the Gitrog monster is probably going to go out of play quickly, and then yeah, it's hard for them to win. But something like a Graftigger's Cage against Flash Hulk. Like, I've seen people, basically, it's like the Graftigger's Cage comes down, and they go like, oh, the Hulk player can't win, so let's ignore them and, you know, be greedy or focus tap on tap out. out yeah. They can't win. Meanwhile, they tutor three times. And, so. Yeah, like, <laughs> they're, you know, it's not actually that hard to remove a Graftigger's Cage. There are several spells in the deck that do it and there are even more that find them are uncounterable uh yeah some that are uncounterable um so don't you know just because somebody's hated out by one or sometimes even two pieces if they're just stopping their win and they're not stopping them from developing tutoring interacting all of those things like don't just ignore them right you have to you have to keep in mind that Graftigger's Gage represents one more piece that the Hulk player needs to find. Not anything more than that. Good piece of advice. Okay, and now I'll return back to my segue. Speaking of ad nauseum, <laughs> so one of the most common pieces of threat assessment that it's, people it's like are going to... One that people gripe about all the like time. It's like the first one that you this, learn when you get into the format. <laughs> Like as yeah. soon as soon, yeah, as, as, soon is- as you play your first game of CDH, and then you take your two two vanilla, and you're like, "I'm gonna attack the mono blue player," and everybody's like, "No!" People freak out. Yeah, <laughs> you can't do that. That wait a second, that's illegal. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, attacking the ad nauseum slash necropotence players. Uh, your life is a resource when you can trade that resource in for cards every single piece of life that you take away from them is one card out of their hand on when they cast ad nauseum or you know resolve their necropotence and start drawing cards so there is there is a weird hierarchy in terms of how to uh evaluate who's the best person to attack it's also one thing i, I just want to say this is this is a general rule of thumb, but you don't. It doesn't always end up being the case that you want to attack the Adnos slash Necro player. I've there are times when you're gonna want to attack a Control Tassiger player or something like that because and, in the you know in the very <laughs> late game that they, you will not be able to close out the game dude. through all their interaction and that you need to get them somehow. So there there are cases where it's not. It's not a set in stone rule, but for the most part, you're going to want to follow this this guideline. And, and, and on that point too, you don't have to attack the Adnos player until they're dead. You just have to attack the Adnos player until their ad nauseum doesn't work anymore. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you don't want them dead. Sometimes you want yeah, them for exactly. their counter magic in they're hand. Almost certainly on blue. Yep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here's here's the the brief matrix of the who to attack first with the Adnaz Necroplayer. So let's let's yeah spin a little a little uh, scenario here. You've got a Shimmerzer player, attack you've got a Gitrog player, you've got a Cast player, and you've got a CST player. Everyone in that pod is running Ad Nauseum. Uh I think everyone 
depending on the list, is running Necropotence. We'll assume, we'll safely but, assume that everybody's running Necropotence here. Yeah. So this is, this is first of all, not you're not going to run into pause like this all the time. So, you know, you might have a, one of those players might be subbed out with a Najila. You're not going to be attacking the Najila player. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're not going to be spending your, your you attacks. You don't know my life. I play player. flyers for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're going to want to be focusing down the player who has most consistent access to Necropotence slash Ad Nauseam or whose primary strategy is m- most built around it. So I would say Zer, as Morgan, Matt, and Reed all pointed out, is the person you're going to target first. The reason being is they have uh, Zer which is going to tutor Necropotence. So it's Necropotence in the command zone, as everyone likes to say. And it, they also if, have... If they're, if they're a Shimmerzer, like they're, that's their one of their primary strategies. It might be their plan A or plan B, but... They also yeah, have... it's you significantly de- decrease their odds of winning if you start hitting some, their life. Something to note is that they, like, Shimmerzer also has, like, the highest... Like, I, I'd probably subjective, but in that pod, probably has, like, the highest rate of... Uh like paying life into something for getting win percentage out of paying that life yep so like the more you hit them you're getting way more like percentage per damage than hitting any of the other decks i think uh assuasion uh has a thing on his primer for shimmerzer where he shows like the hyper geometric distribution for cards drawn versus win percentage and you know, oh, cool. once you take them past a certain certain point, like their their win percentage starts to tank heavily. Like a Shimmerzer trying to combo off after drawing ten cards is is kind of pathetic compared to a Shimmerzer player drawing thirty cards. But even less extreme, is, twenty cards. Yeah. Like, yep, yeah, every card matters. Uh, so, and then following up on that in that pod, it. People Gitrog is often a very primary attack target for these kind for for threat assessment. Most people would pick Gitrog after Zer. I would argue that I think Cass is actually the one you want to hit next after Zer, due to the fact that Ad Nauseam is it's a solid thing you can do in Gitrog. Same with Necropotence, but you don't you're not as dependent on it for a win condition as you are in something. But like there's Cass. A, that I would be inclined to agree. But there's also there's you know, you need to, you start adding in more and more things. Like, the joke is attack Zer first, because Zer is so vastly disproportionately likely to try and use their life total to generate advantage mm-hmm. compared to any other deck, but... I suppose it also, it also depends on if it's a consult cast versus yeah, a... Yeah, consult cast versus uh, a storm, storm cast. cast. But also, like, beyond Zer, who's sort of the obvious attack, this is where you start trying to factor in sort of more less just about the deck list and more about the game state so does somebody have crypt does somebody have library even something like a tarnished citadel might represent it's like you know what if they're going to be dealing six to nine damage to themselves then maybe you know this extra five to ten you know is more meaningful than if they're not doing that even Um, even like even like oh they did something early so they have like a like they powered out something early so they have like a tab mana vault and they also happen to have like a i don't know like a they have like a, a, a mana confluence in play like oh they have like an elves of deep shadow well that's like three life a turn if they want to use all their mana 
So, like, just, like, considering all sources of, like, where they might be taking damage from or, like, where... Yeah. Incidental damage, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's just, like, how, like, how much, like, how much more your points of damage will put them toward them not being able to... Or them really having to consider whether or not they're going to be able to use those sources of damage anymore. And And another thing to consider is whether or not you can deal enough damage for it to be meaningful in the near future so if you're attacking somebody who you know like for example attacking Kess is usually like you know it's not a bad thing to do but if you're putting I don't know three damage on Kess uh, and then you're expecting them to just slam Kess next turn and have a 3-4 flyer uh then you know you're getting three damage on cast but if you if there's somebody at the table who also might want to use their life total but doesn't have easy access to a three four flying blocker then you know maybe it makes sense to put the damage on them so you can actually take them off the threat sooner rather than uh rather than them just you know getting in three damage and then Oh, I guess I have to attack somebody else now. Yeah, it's 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 like. Was there a Thrasios in our in our? There is. Here? There's a CST player. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I would say that. Um, I would say that like, depending on how clogged up the board state is, especially if like you know the Kess player and the Zero player have been dealt with by you know a lot of untapped mana or permanent based you know uh, disruption, I would probably go for the Thrasios player because in my mind they have the most inevitability or at least the better end game among that set of. Decks. Yeah, certainly comparable. It's like Gitrog or the Thrasios Timna in terms of ability to grind out. And depending on like what what Advantage, removal and yeah. game state and mana looks like, yeah. Um, but also, Although, yeah. Speaking, speaking of, of speaking Thrasios, of Thrasios, hey, Thrasios Timna, this is my point. This is my point. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote this in the show okay, notes. Sure. My point. Speaking of Thrasios and Timna, <laughs> um, yeah. Another big thing about like determining who you're attacking and determining threat assessment that way is. You have to make the decision of whether or not you actually want to attack. <laughs> because a lot of the time, you'll see a Kess player go like, yeah, I can I attack three damage onto Zer because I want to. Because that seems like the thing to do. And they realize that they open themselves up to a Timna beat, and suddenly Timna player's up a life and draw an extra card that turn, and the Kess player also took two damage for swinging out with Kess. So just like considering considering whether or not you actually want to attack. Yeah, yeah definitely. Welcome to the modern CDH metagame. <laughs> definitely one of the one of the things I see that the most with is people who get gilded drakes in decks that don't run a lot of creatures. Like their commander gets gilded draked, and they have this gilded drake, and they're like, "Well, this isn't my commander. I guess it's just a dumb creature that I attack with." And then. Yeah, they it's like oh, no, deal, you <laughs> deal three damage on my blocker. Are you really trading three damage on one of your opponents to let possibly one of your other opponents draw a card? Like, well, yeah, just remember what you're what you're dealing damage for, right? You're you're trading you're you're trying to deal damage to reduce the amount of cards that they could potentially get out of an ad nauseum or necropotence. Whereas if you're if you're leaving yourself vulnerable as an open attacker your opponent is just actually drawing cards immediately from that exchange and potentially so. also gaining life from the exchange 
God. Yeah. So Timna, Timna having lifelink. My God. <laughs> we, what, we've talked about that. What enough. a fact. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think we can move on to one of our last t- points. Not the last one, but one of our last ones. And that's going to be weakening opponents with known answers increases the threat of others. Yes. I, I'd like to bring Zer back like, up oh, for this one because yeah, sure, Matt, go, I hate to pick it. on Zer, but. Um, you know, if if you do reduce their life total to a certain point, they're now the player with who keeps up the mana because they have to play late and they have to, you know, keep their counter spells and their removal up. So I would say that like they are certainly not the target at that point because they are actually the ones providing the answers rather than you. I would also say people people tend to take Zer lower than I think you need to. I think Zer is pretty so in in a standard like shimmer pile, you're going to you're going to leave yourself with maybe like four or five life because you want to have one life for a free force of will so that you can counter whatever people are trying to do, and then another two life for like a uh, vamp tutor, vampiric tutor, yeah, or like a quickened imperial seal, something like that. So fifteen life. If if the if the zerg player is at fifteen life, I generally feel comfortable stopping there for the most part because they're going to maybe get 11 10 cards off of a necropotence which if you look at the if you look at the hypergeometric distribution is not not the best odds for winning so the zerg player most likely is not going to try to go for that kind of win now you do have to be you do have to be aware that the zerg player is not out of the game they've still got uh angel's grace ad nauseum for or, or consult wins but you're, you're no longer worrying about them you know trying to shimmer if that's if that's what you're doing so learning learning when to slow down on the aggression and and direct it elsewhere is, is certainly and, important yeah, just, like recognize but, when you've yeah. done when you've achieved the goal that you want to achieve with combat damage if you yeah if you make it so that if you bring the zero player to five life and then it just means that a get rog player or so because zero does not put up a lot of blockers and Zer gets countered a lot, uh, so it's very likely. It's it's not likely that they're going to be able to block with Zer, or it's it's quite likely that that Zer is not going to be able to deal with all. You know, if there's like a board full of like Timna attackers and things like that, that someone who's going to try to combo out might just go to kill to take out the Zer player in one swing before trying to combo out, and then that's just one player. Uh, le- less to worry about in terms of you know counter magic, so you want to have them in like a kind of buffer zone, where you don't want them to be at so low life that one player can you know just kind of take them out in one swing before they try to combo. Yeah, like and and just more generally, not just leaving people alive, but you know when talking about where to spread damage, you know we mentioned a hypergeometric distribution, and you know if you think of it sort of like a bell curve, where you know, taking them from a 40-card ad nauseum to a 35-card ad nauseum, like, doesn't really matter. They're almost certainly going to win either way. Taking them from a 25-card ad nauseum to a 20-card ad nauseum, what that really matters. Like, in the middle, you know, it's much more, you know, that's where most of the effect is. Um, Taking someone from a yeah, taking someone to from a ten card. card to a five card ad nauseum takes them from not winning the game off an ad nauseum to not winning the game off an ad nauseum. So yeah, mm-hmm. 
Well, actually, that's not true. I saw an, I saw an ad nauseum on like Twelve Life that just hit Lab Man Demonic Consultation Preordain. I was like, Yeah, I, I guess that that does it. I have ad from Eight Life and Varals and won the game on the untap. I've done oh I've done a, a plunge into darkness for like fifteen and get rug taken an ad nauseum ad nauseum hit ulamog <laughs> off my first thing and still won on that same turn so but <laughs> i was playtesting this but it's rare yeah i was playtesting yeah. this razaketh deck that had a plan that was like if you don't have enough creatures just tutor for sacrifice and ad nauseum and then try to ad nauseum <laughs> And it, yeah, so you would yeah, so it it actually worked surprising amount of, a surprising amount of times. Wow. Oh, um, one one deck that might actually be higher on the attack me first totem pole than Zer, if you happen to see it, although it's not exactly common. Is oh, Crick. Yes. Oh, Crick. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Crick. Yeah. The deck where Crick. the Doomsday Pile costs exactly 40 life from start to finish. Or 39. 39. 39. It's quite poetic. Wait, what? <laughs> oh, and I'd, I'd also know. be. Uh, I'd, I'd kick myself if, uh, if I didn't hit my goto mentioned for the episode of course <laughs> and that's going to be treasonous ogre yep, and goto yep. is something you need to be aware of get them under uh, multiples of three but that well that's one yeah so they need 11 mana to combo from absolutely nothing <laughs> you know just casting goto finding helm equipping helm so <laughs> you should be aware of you know the surprise treasonous ogre get them down to where they you know if it only takes a couple hits to get the Goto player you off want the them to 33 or under. You just need to get them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but then also that's going to scale depending on the later the game has to get more mana, right? So you might want to kind of chip in every now and then to make sure they can't get a treason Ogre off. But yeah, they, they don't. You don't have to get them down to like 15, like uh, with most ad nauseum decks. And and one more thing, I think Matt touched on this briefly when he mentioned inevitability, but it's not just about people turning their life total into cards. Uh, if, for whatever reason, you're not particularly worried about that threat, you should start looking at people who... Like, the the decks that are more favored to win, the longer the game goes, it's better to put damage on them. Like, if... the if Yeah, I mentioned that. Yeah, with you the mentioned tasker. the Tasker as well, but just, yeah. you know... Turning turns into threat. Yeah, turning... <laughs> yeah. Or is, like, like yeah. I play... I play um, you know, I have my Muldrotha deck, and you know, yes, there's the Zers weirding that sometimes does silly things with life totals, but also just if I'm trying to make the game last like 15 turns, you know, like that's a lot of time for a mana crypt or some pain lands or like a I don't know, like an some a swan from Swan Song yep. to put in some beats. So if you know, if that's my plan, like the longer the game goes, the the more resource advantage I have. So don't let me live through a long game yeah so like get him get him yeah. get him down and don't to like, don't don't exclude which yeah, brings don't, me don't to my next point which beats. is morgan dies first <laughs> hmm. yes every <laughs> game always always yeah don't don't exclude beats as a uh, as a way uh, to close out the game a non like i i was gonna say a non-zero but it's you know it's actually i think a a more than you would expect number of CDH games actually end so, through so combat don't, damage. Don't dedicate your strategy or a lot of card choices to it, but make sure that you're it's factoring into your decision making. That yeah, think some some think, stacks your decks run Elishnorn and they'll close up the game through Elishnorn. Think I mean, about these combat. are more haymaker <laughs> and, cards. And again, it's but it's we in it, it 
I was going to say, in Keegan, so we mentioned Keegan's primer for Urza at the top construct. of the show, but his, he, he is, he is one, like, I think, I think he says in the primer something like one third of his games. And, you know, maybe even if that's a bit exaggerated, I, I, I wouldn't put it less than like one fifth of his games winning through just stacking out the game and using construct beats. Combat damage is real. So sometimes you, you, you need to be aware of you know closing out the game and i know constructs do get better the more yes. you have them <laughs> i know and i know CAD, cdh players have no idea how combat works and i know everybody ever forgot how first strike works and we had to actually go look at the rules text for that in an actual game of cdh because nobody remembered how first strike worked but <laughs> but did you I, remember I just how explained trample works? <laughs> yeah dude yeah I just explained how a chains of Mephistopheles interacts with Notion Thief to someone at a table, and then I go to attack, and Morgan had to correct me on how trample works. But, but even more reason to think about combat when you're in a game. Make sure it factors into your decision making. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't matter in the games where everybody dies on turn three to whatever. It doesn't matter in the games where like somebody just resolves an ad and wins. But make sure that when you're attacking, you have purpose behind the attack. Make sure that like, yeah, when you're not attacking, mm -hmm. you have a purpose for not attacking, right? When you have creatures doing combat right is free. Like it doesn't, there's no cost to making sure you're doing the right attacks and blocks. You didn't have to include special cards in your deck to make it happen, but it can pick up points here and there. Yeah, and the last point on on our topic uh we kind of wrote it as as a joke which is reed always has it don't listen to his lies but this kind of segues into uh just players talking and you know cdh is a lot more political than people oh, it's a social give it credit all right for yeah it, <laughs> There you are. People are constantly trying to manipulate each other into uh, incorrect threat assessment. Um, you know, misevaluating, misevaluating cards, making incorrect attacks, doing all these kinds of things. So we we talked about asking the people for for who's the threat, but be wary of just letting someone's comment get into your head and you just internalizing without you, you should have some sort of like mental firewall up that just whenever <laughs> someone says something you run it past that little firewall and then you decide whether or not there's something you want to take into play like i was playing with friend of the show dave and uh he was doing coming off with cast storm and he's like i think i mentioned on his turn i was like oh damn dave's just gonna you know mystical tutor for yagmas will and then we're done and he's like, yeah, okay, I think I'm going to find Yawgmoth's will. He goes to cast it. I'm like, there's a Graph Digger's Cajun dude, play, buddy. <laughs> dude, oh my god. I've, I've had so many times recently where I, especially the this last game, I'll, I'll keep parties anonymous, but I had an Aven Mind Sensor out and just talking through plays that don't necessarily work through an Aven Mind Sensor and make them think that they're viable <laughs> plays. <laughs> yeah. and, and one of the things we've been focusing a lot on like we, we've touched somewhat on interaction, but one other thing is um, when you put people on interaction, um, sometimes it's appropriate to take risks that they might not have it to force them to use it. Like certain people will basically just do everything they can to avoid interacting, and then they'll go for a win with like six counter spells. Reed always has it, don't listen to his lies. Um, <laughs> 
And this is this is something I see a lot that people like they just you know there's something that they really want countered or like potentially even need countered like represents a game ending threat. And like if you really think about it, there's like a 95% chance that whoever it is who's behind you in priority has the answer. Like that 5% risk that they don't have it is often smaller than the risk of you tapping out to interact and letting them keep their interaction for when they try and win. So draw like you aren't responsible for interacting with everything. You know, you can take risks to draw interaction out of people. So this wasn't planned, but I break this down in great detail in the shuffle primer. So if you want to read more about it, go look at that. Cause I actually did do that right up on this. And this is a, actually one of the things that i cover extensively in that primer <laughs> yeah th- that was what reminded of it me of it is that reed does that endlessly eternally <laughs> frustrating to watch people just just let him answer <laughs> no dude I, I don't play answers uh All yeah right. so i think that's that wraps up our primary topic for threat assessment if you guys have you know any comments or anything you'd like to share that we didn't cover uh join us on the discord and we'd love to participate in that kind of discussion but it is now time for everyone's favorite segment gut check good check check. (laughs) come on my gut's doing great thanks for asking okay so my gut check for you guys this time is which deck do you think has the highest skill ceiling? Oh format? boy, what a meme. <laughs> and oh, I I I was thinking on this for a bit and honestly, I'm I'm not even how confident. I I'm not super confident in my answer, but you know, well I think that, I think there's a case for it. I have my answer. I feel like it might be the same as yours. I think I also have my answer. A bit it of a might meme. be similar. We'll see. But, you know. Lennon's going to keep his proud tradition of answering Goto. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who wants to go first? <laughs> I'll, I'll go first. Uh, my pick is Cast Storm. I think, you know, some Stormlands are pretty straightforward, but uh, to pilot that deck, to pilot Storm at the highest level definitely requires uh some things you know Thanks, so buddy. doomsday could could be uh hey man i'm not i say i'm not saying you can pilot at the <laughs> highest ability. <laughs> yeah it's like it's, storm lines can be a lot like doomsday piles where they get you need to get very creative okay i'm done that's my spiel uh i guess i'll go next because i have the same answer cast storm for the same reasons like you put that pretty well okay i feel like morgan has the same answer so i'll let him go first uh, I mean, it's not exactly the same. It's similar. I was going to say, like, any. <laughs> it was Manual Storm, so Kest Storm and Shimmerzer were the two uh, that have just the number of lines that are possible. And a lot of the times, those lines involving using cards in maybe unintuitive ways, like uh, Dramatic Reversal. Um, mm-hmm. Like, those, there's a lot like going on there. Um, I've seen a lot more people play Shimmerzer, so maybe that's why I was leaning more towards that one, but they are both very similar in that classification in my mind. Okay, Reed, let's hear you say Shufflehawk. Just get <laughs> Actually, surprisingly, <laughs> because you didn't mention power level at all and just mentioned difficulty, 
I'm 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 still gonna. Name You're gonna say hackball. I, I'm gonna. Well, I said I no, said no, I, in I the format. I'm still gonna mention CDH decks. Um, just like I sure. don't think that <laughs> some random yeah, popper brew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think that the hardest decks in the format are necessarily some of the better decks in the format. Um, I personally would That's say it's, it's like between three, but like it, I can get the general point across. Um, but it's I think it's low color blue decks that are like like basically okay okay i think jvp is a very difficult deck to play correctly um and i think it's because there's the no epitome, way to play that deck exactly correctly. it's the epitome jvp <laughs> is the epitome of the deck that's like um very 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 difficult to play hyper easy to play against <laughs> <laughs> like, oh it is, God, it is not a good storm deck but it is very difficult okay, rule of thumb <laughs> if you're gonna play if you're gonna play mono blue just be ready to block <laughs> please <laughs> please yeah <laughs> please. unless i'm playing yeah. 10 9 in which case you know whatever <laughs> uh did you have anything you said you had a oh, couple yeah. decks My, you the other one I, I couldn't decide between these two so i'm gonna list both of them um but it, it was between that and also low color control. So like Brawl and Rashmi, I think are incredibly difficult decks to play, but like they're not good. <laughs> but like I, yeah. I, I do, I do I, think I that can, playing Brawl and Rashmi, because yeah. they're effectively the same deck, but I think playing that collective deck is a very, very difficult thing to do in like a, in an optimal manner, just because the number of decisions, I kind of want to comment. I kind of want, I know gut check we're not supposed to like comment too much but I kind of want to comment on Reed's thing where uh Matt Morgan and I kind of picked decks that are difficult to pilot in terms of execution in like for the the winning the game portion but Reed Reed picked a deck or like in in like control for instance that requires high skill in threat assessment and politics to pilot that deck at its you know at at it's but also knowledge level. of like what you what your role is um yeah you well you need to know you need to know the other decks if you're playing control you need to know the other decks like almost flawlessly you need to know when to sandbag how to sandbag you need to have a good poker face do and manipulate people like you need to do you need to operate on all those kinds of fronts i would say i would say uh yeah. matt Lyndon, and i pick decks that are easy to play like are easy to play incorrectly and Reed picked a deck that is hard to play correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Good summary. My one joke answer is, uh, oh, actually, sorry, you go first. Like, just, you know, it's easy, like, it's very easy to mess up storm lines, um, but that is only one part of the game, and it's an important one, but certainly a lot of the decisions that come before that can add up to be very important in a less obvious way. Okay, man, what's your joke? What's your joke answer? Oh, uh, yeah, the most, the hardest deck, maybe not to pilot, but definitely to, you know, memorize is Food Chain Niv because you just have to know all the jank multicolored <laughs> yeah, cards in the format. <laughs> dude, Corpse Knight made that deck so easy yeah. to build. God damn it! Wow, Wizards in the fucking power creep. Yeah, I would recite that one, but you know, it's just so obvious. Remember everyone laughing at me for my consuming aberration that's been like mana drained and swords and assassin's trophy <laughs> <laughs> all right yeah you're right all it's right. like i'll play yeah. this 3838 
Can we get an F in chat for Niv Miss it again? She died so young. <laughs> I know we've asked F for boys. F in chat before, yeah, but another F. Okay, so uh, before we close out, we've got a listener question from a patron because patrons get priority listener questions. So this comes from patron uh, Morality18. Uh, what do you do when you really screwed up? <laughs> Got a game with food chain sliver and realistically all win cons were removed. I know that spite pacting is kind of frowned upon, but if you know there is no win con left, do you concede or sit through so, it? So, I mean, first of all, I have to reject the premise of this question because the first sliver always sliver has a, a seven, win seven? It is a 7-7. Seven, <laughs> seven. That is a clock. Like that, no joke. Yeah, but there are decks where that's sure. less realistic. So that that's yeah. when this question becomes a little more like, yeah. you know, Zer as an example. You're not going to kill people with Zer. Yeah, beats. like if you're if you're if Zer is like necro locked, like it's over. <laughs> it's all done. over. Yeah, you're you're basically hoping yeah. for someone to time twister or you know some miracle. But we had this exact yeah. same thing happen at gp montreal with it i mean it wasn't it wasn't a necro lock like this the zur so the zur game was not completely over because i did i didn't i did end up going for another win attempt but it was it was like really unlikely i would have rather scooped up that game but i kind of left it to the to my opponents so so one one thing that's kind of you can't you if if there is only one pod that you're playing in like scooping it up feels kind of weird right like you're i'm just gonna you know pack my shit up unless you have to actually like go somewhere i think it's generally preferable that you sit and wait it out until you're actually dead um maybe you beg people to put you out of your misery but (laughs) that's that's aside from the point whereas in this case there's at jp montreal you know there was all kinds of different pods firing and i would like to this game is pretty much over for me so I would like to, you know, ideally kind of wrap it up and go on and play some other game. But I did I didn't just scoop it up, even though I, I, I if it was up to me, I would have. I said to everyone else in the pod, if any of you want me to stay in this game, I will stay in the game. Uh, and I think it was Morgan who's like, yeah, I, I kind of want you to stay in the game. And for some of the reasons like we addressed in this episode itself, right? When a player is is that low, you still are kind of relying on them for counter spells and, and whatnot interaction and sometimes irrelevant as attackers. Uh, you know, you're an open Timna, you're an, you're open for Timna beats. <laughs> the, the, the Timna store is open. So it's, I think it's generally the, the correct thing to do is to ask the pod if they're fine with it, unless you actually have some external commitment that you did i think that's a very graceful way to handle it honestly um just yeah ask ask if people will let you go and if they will then you can leave um i I know that not you can't always get that though and it's not always realistic to just be able to ask the table and leave um i mean did like depending on both situation and like how you're feeling maybe you like just really don't want to play the game anymore it's just not something that you're down to sit around and watch the game another like half hour i also get that um what i would say is once you're at the point in the game where you basically have zero hope of winning at all um just try to be graceful about it don't be like spite packing or like doing like things just to mess with people um if you know that like you're not winning the game anyway and you're not doing anything there anyway um i think it's reasonable to like try to not 
die, but like don't go out of your way to just mess with people. Um, and then if you yeah. are going to concede, I will always 100% of the time recommend conceding at sorcery speed. Because I think it's the most graceful way to bow out of a game is to wait until your turn and then draw your card, go to your main, and then go, okay, now I'm conceding. Honestly, I think if you're just bowing out because you think you can't win, I would go even farther than that and warn people. That's fair. Like, like for, you know, sorcery speed is good. It's better than instant speed. But, you know, if I, like, tap low on my turn, I'm like, well, you know, the Zer player doesn't have win cons and has a bunch of cards in hand, and I tap low, and then Zer player untaps, goes, cool, concede. It's like, okay, well, I certainly made decisions based on, you know, information that wasn't really accurate so if you say like you know it's your turn you say like okay on my next turn i'm going to concede or something like that i would say the two things that you sort of have two options which is one you can try and leave the game as gracefully as possible using some of the strategies we've laid out here and the other the other thing is or you can play as if you still have a way to win like whatever you know it's, you know what i'm going to try and beat people to death with this cast i'm going to counter them trying to win i'm going to you know answer threats as if there was still a lab man in my deck you know even though there isn't like i'm not just gonna start pointing interaction around randomly or you know doing silly things i'm gonna play you know as tight as possible as if i can actually beat people to, to death with this guess if you're staying in the game yeah uh, i just wanted to mention about spite pacting this is kind of a really tough spot to evaluate whether or not it's a spite pact um so sometimes people will call it a spite pact if it's if you simply cannot pay for it on your turn. Now, I think there's a bit of wiggle room on this front where you can do some justifying, you can yes. Kind of try to implement Yeah, so one because people have made the argument in the past where if you know you're immediately going to lose, uh you might as well spite pact or you might as well pact because there's maybe, you know, some miracle chance that you can uh still, you know, win the game better you know some 0.00001% chance is better than 0 so that's the most competitive play i think i think there is a bit of um a social contract that's kind of built into this where my personal rule on it is that if you have some reasonable if you if you were basically have only pact of negation in your hand and you're on like one land there's there's almost no combination of cards that's going to get you there so you know, that's that's a spite pact. I don't think it's worth. But doing. what if my opponent if plays kind of sitting on extortionist then donates it, me some treasure? <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, <laughs> if, but if you're if you're sitting on if you're sitting on let's say uh, three open mana or four open mana, and you've got a brainstorm in hand, right? You could reasonably cast a brainstorm and hit a angel's grace if you're running it to stop that pact, or you can find a dark ritual or, or cabal like, say ritual. You're on, say you're on there, there are effects. ways that you can pay for the pact. Exactly, like stifling the pack trigger. And the last the last thing I would say is that sometimes you can make a deal with people in terms of, you know, I've got a pact of negation in hand. If you do everything in your power to like wheel next turn to or or to stifle my pack trigger, then I will pack this. I think that's also acceptable. And I would say also just don't be too quick to label things spite packs. Yes, think about it um, first. Because like one of the you know spite is certainly a question of intent, which can be hard to evaluate. Like I cast a pact 
on a, it was actually on a um, a wall of roots recently that I I couldn't pay for, um, but basically everyone except me like everyone was tapped out and the food chain player had just done a consultation and I was like they almost certainly have a counter spell um, so they will counter my pact and then you know they're short mana on their food chain or whatever it is because they want to try and go off this turn rather than wait for the cycle and like they just went okay cool I guess Wall of Roots is countered and then I died to my pact but like you know that wasn't me just being like no you know screw you it was me being like yeah. I think you're going to counter this and you know they didn't and I lost but there was no spite involved in that play okay well before we close the show i just want to say if, if there's one thing you want to take away from this episode uh that's going to be that learn threat assessment in terms of combat because cdh players get really salty when you attack someone <laughs> not who's not the adnos player <laughs> and with that that about wraps it up for this episode if you guys would like to reach out to us with any questions comments or concerns you can contact us on twitter at into the north pod via our email into the north podcast at gmail.com or on our discord server the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode an extra special thanks to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses for our show and allow us to work towards improving the quality of the podcast if you too would like to become a patron we are at patreon.com slash into the north podcast thank you as always to the band vox cadre for our lovely podcast music to nate slover for our equally lovely podcast logo and to our long suffering podcast editor roadkill next episode will be out in two weeks until then see ya see ya bye have a good one